Luke chapter 7. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. Remember, that was the Sermon on the Plain. The plain words of Jesus that we covered and talked about on Sunday. And after finishing this, he goes back into Capernaum. Not a big area there around the Sea of Galilee, but Capernaum is right on the sea. So he goes back there, and we're told, verse 2, a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He's worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it is he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, Not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So we begin tonight with a delegation. A delegation of faith. In Matthew chapter 8, the centurion's story is told, and it's slightly different. If you compare Matthew and Luke's version, Matthew 8, Luke chapter 7... In Matthew, the centurion approaches Jesus himself. Well, here in in Luke, we never see the Roman. We just see two delegations that he sends. Taken together, I think Matthew and Luke give us the full picture. Now, sometimes that's the intent of the Gospels. Remember, the Gospel writers will be looking from one perspective or from another. And what Matthew is focusing on, as we saw with the Sermon on the Mount versus the Sermon on the Plain, Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, he's focusing on Jewish things. And while the words of the two sermons are very similar, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and Luke chapter 6, there are key differences because they're different audiences. And because the focus of Matthew, as inspired by the Spirit, is different than the focus of Luke. And so is true here in the story of the centurion. But as we put the Gospels together we get a fuller picture. What happened was the centurion first, as Luke tells us, sent a delegation of faith. He sent Jewish elders. Now that says something. A Roman centurion sends a group of Jewish leaders there in Capernaum to go to Jesus and ask for this healing. No doubt the Roman, well, rightly thought a Jewish rabbi would like to hear from Jewish people. So I'm going to get some Jewish people and and send them. And these Jewish elders... They have a high regard for the centurion. Well, that's the first delegation of faith. And then he sends a second delegation. Perhaps word gets back to the centurion that Jesus is on his way to his house and the centurion is saying, no, 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 no. No, I'm a foot soldier. He's a general. That, that's not appropriate. You know, I know how this works. So he sends a second delegation of his friends to cause Jesus to pause and to say, just say the word. That's all that's necessary here. Speak the word. Well, finally, as Matthew tells us, then the centurion does come out of his house and meet Jesus himself. 
And I think that's the full picture we see all three. Again, why the different takes? Because the Gospel writers have different emphases. Matthew is focusing on the Roman centurion's declaration of faith. That he's the one talking. He's the one there in person. He's the one who says to Jesus, Say the word and my servant will be healed. Well, Luke emphasizes not the declaration of faith, but the delegation of faith. Luke gets into the interesting uh, delegations, groups that he sends ahead. This outward expression of an inward heart. So that's a delegation of faith. What we see in the Jewish elders and in the friends of the centurion, we see outwardly what's going on inside his heart. He sends out that which is going on in him. And again, in verse 6, we're told Jesus started on His way when the centurion sent friends, another delegation, saying, Note this, Lord, do not trouble Yourself further. I am not worthy for You to come under My roof. I do not even consider myself worthy to come to You. What Luke reveals here with this Roman centurion is a beautiful humility, a humbleness, a respectful depth of faith. I think that's part of what Jesus wasn't seeing in Israel. A faith that not only believed in God, but believed with humility. A faith that understood His place in the structure of things. See, a lot of the Jewish people, especially among the elders and the rulers and the Pharisees, well, there was belief, but there was an awful lot of pride in their religion, in their history, in their personhood, who they were. Well, the centurion didn't have that, not being a Jew. But he had a great respect for the Jews and a respectful depth of faith. So he begins by sending Jesus' own people to him, the Jewish elders, who attest to his good character. And they say he is worthy of your consideration. Then he sends the second group. And the second group say, hey, hey, he wanted us to tell you he's not worthy for you to come. And notice the contrast? Jesus are saying he's worthy, man, you need to bless him. And his friends are saying... He told us to tell you He's not worthy for you to come into His house. Which is why He didn't come to you Himself in the first place. He didn't feel like He was worthy to be in your presence. A faith that recognizes the positional authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus as commander. Jesus as power, as all authority in heaven and on earth. And where do I fall in the scheme of things? I am but a humble bondservant. I am a bondslave. Like the centurion, I'm not worthy to even be in his presence. I am not worthy to have him come into my house, and yet he does. And yet he invites me into his presence, and yet as we sang, he calls me friend. But it's not because I'm worthy. I think the reality here is the Jews say he's worthy because that's what they see in his life. They see a worthy man. Outwardly, he looks worthy. Inwardly, He knows he's not. And that's another truth here, that others may call me worthy, but I know the truth. I can do all kinds of things outwardly that express faith and look like a godly man, but I know my faults. I know my doubts. I know my struggles. So do you. We know ourselves better than anyone else knows us. And when it comes right down to it, faith is all about who you know. Faith is in knowing yourself and it is in knowing Christ Jesus. 
It is in knowing that I am not worthy and knowing He is absolutely worthy. And as we come to know Him and understand His rank is far greater than any other in heaven and on earth, that He alone can heal, that He alone can save, it puts us back in our place positionally, humbly before the Lord to say, Lord Jesus, thank You for even considering me to be in Your presence. That is the substance, I believe, of the centurion's faith. Jesus said in John 6.40, This is the will of My Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I Myself will raise Him up on that last day. He will raise us up physically. He will resurrect us spiritually, but He will also raise us up from the place of our bowing, raise us from our bondservanthood to rule and reign with Him in the coming kingdom. He raises us up. We don't raise us up. We come to Him humbly, recognizing our position. Psalm 73.25 Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Now that being said, there's a distinction about this Roman that bears understanding. You may know this, but a centurion is a leader of a hundred. So a Roman centurion is a leader of a hundred, but this particular centurion was beloved by hundreds. Apparently not just his company of soldiers, but the Jewish people of Capernaum and and the surrounding area loved this guy, were impressed by this guy, had an affection for him. Why is that? Two reasons, and the Scriptures tell us. Because he loved their nation. And because he built their synagogue. That's why we continue to highlight Israel in our fellowship here. It's why we talk a lot about Israel. It's why we go to Israel that like the centurion, we would do two things. We would love the nation and build their synagogue. Love the nation, I get. What are you talking about, Rick? Building their synagogue. Well, very simply, the Jewish word for synagogue is Knesset. Okay, you've heard about the Knesset in Israel. That's where all their leaders meet. That's where, where their prime minister meets. And that's their seat of government, the Knesset. But Knesset just means a gathering place. The synagogue is just a gathering place. And when I say build their synagogue, I, I mean that we would love the nation and build their gathering place. Support the regathering of Israel. Encourage the Jewish people in their coming back into the land. Prayerfully support them by praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Right now, Israel is feeling her isolation in the world. I want to share a brief article with you I ran across just yesterday. And it's entitled, Region Boiling. For those of you about to travel to Israel with us in March, you'll appreciate this. Region Boiling. (laughs) Israel takes up castle strategy. After a Katusha rocket fired from Lebanon landed in Israel last month in Kiryat Shmona, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu blamed Hezbollah, the Shiite militia, and its Iranian backers. But Israeli security officials attributed the attack, as well as a similar one in August, to a Sunni jihadist group linked to Al-Qaeda. Side note, not in this article, just heard today Brian was mentioning to me that Israel foiled an Al-Qaeda plot to attack the, uh, the U.S. embassy there in Tel Aviv. But listen as he goes on. It says, The disconnect is representative of the deepening dilemma Israel faces in the region as it is riven by sectarian warfare that could redraw the map of the Middle East. 
So you got tiny Israel, and then you've got all of this stuff going on all around it, from Egypt all the way up to Syria and into Lebanon, through Jordan. Obviously Iraq. Iraq, as you know, is coming unglued again. Iran, the threat of the nuclear bomb. Syria continues in civil war. You've got Egypt still, not a whole lot of rest there. Arab winter going on everywhere. And Israel in the midst of all of this. And so it says, as the chaos escalates, and we're talking about outside the land, Israeli officials insist they have no inclination to intervene. Instead, they have embraced a castle mentality, hoping the moat they have dug in the form of high-tech border fences, intensified military deployments, and sophisticated intelligence is broad enough at least to buy time. (laughs) Time for what? If you don't know Bible prophecy, if you don't know what the Word of God says about what's coming in the days not far off, you would wonder, what are they buying time for? It's it's fruitless. It's hopeless. The castle's just going to go down. Not according to the Word of God. Yaakov Amidror said, what we see now is a collapsing of an historical system, the idea of the national Arabic state. That is amazing. The Arabic state is collapsing under its own weight, under its own infighting, under its own civil war. It has nothing to do with Israel. And the funny thing is people say, well, if Israel would just you know, put down their weapons, then there could be peace. Hey, if Israel put down their weapons, there would be no Israel. Right? Israel's not the issue. The, the long-term fighting and that mentality throughout the Middle East is an issue. It says, what we see now is a collapsing of a historical system. It means that we will be encircled by an area which will be no man's land at the end of the day. And so, this former major general in military intelligence summed up the strategy as, quote, wait and keep the castle. Netanyahu said from the Straits of Gibraltar to the Khyber Pass, it is very hard to come by a safe and secure area. Peace can be built on hope, but that hope has to be grounded in fact. A peace that is not based on truth will crash against the realities of the Middle East. So we have an isolated Israel. And in the text before us, we see a centurion, a Roman, an oppressor, or at least involved with the nation, oppressing Israel. And his attitude toward the people was, love the nation and build their synagogue. I think it's a right attitude. We need more centurions willing to do this. Remembering that God said to Abram in Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The next section is a snapshot of God's heart, of His passion for, I believe, His people Israel. Watch this, verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her, and he said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. (laughs) I can't read this without seeing Peter's face. No, Lord, don't don't interrupt the funeral. What's he doing? Oy vey. 
And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother, no doubt after they revived her. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report concerning him went out all over Judea and in the surrounding district. This is funeral number one that Jesus will interrupt in the Gospel according to Luke. He's always interrupting funerals. He really doesn't have a lot of patience for dead people. You know, he doesn't let a sleeping man lie. He's got to raise him up. And Luke alone tells this resurrection story of the gospel writers. He inserts here the resurrection of the son of the widow in the city of Nain. And I believe this story stands as a demonstration of deity. And we just started out with a delegation of faith. So if you're keeping an outline there you go delegation of faith demonstration of deity I know I didn't do it on Sunday but I'm right back to it tonight (laughs) a demonstration of deity what do you mean listen again to what the people said in verse 16 God has visited his people God has visited his people I believe this is an absolutely Holy Spirit intentional connection to Psalm 8 Luke 7, 16, Psalm 8, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, the son of man that you care for him? Now note this, in Psalm 8, the Hebrew word for care for is pakad, and it also translates to visit. What is man that you visit him? That you care for him, that you look in on him? It's a visit to look in on, to care for somebody. Well, the Greek word for visited also means to care for. These two words in the Greek and in the Hebrew are interchangeable words that mean to visit, to look in on, to care for. Same word, two different languages. The Greek word, by the way, is... (laughs) Yeah, episkeptomai. Episkeptomai. Doesn't mean you're a skeptic. Actually, it's from the root Greek word skopos, where we get the word episkopos. Is anyone familiar with that word? Episcopalian? Okay. To be an Episcopal means bishop. It's where we get the word bishop in English. Episcopos, a bishop, scopus, meaning to care for. So this word is talking about both here, God has visited His people, God cares for His people. In Psalm 8, what is man that you take thought of Him, the Son of Man that you care for Him? What is the Son of Man that you visit Him? And God is here looking in on His people with great care. I I believe Psalm 8 is prophetic. And I believe the Spirit is tapping in on that saying, yeah, God has visited His people. Indeed, God is looking in on His people in the person of Jesus Christ. And when God looks in on His people and He sees death, it doesn't please Him. Do you know that death was not anything God ever wanted for us? You realize that was a... A punishment in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God said to Adam, and of course people say, well, Adam didn't die. He lived some 900 years, so God was obviously wrong. No, no, that's God's patience. The punishment was still there. It would still ultimately come. And death is the punishment for sin, and sin is is the rebellion of our hearts. And God doesn't like death. God is not into people dying. He takes no delight, no pleasure in the death even of a wicked man. 
He's not up there rubbing his hands together going, yeah, I got another one. It's just the opposite. As he comes in and this funeral procession is coming out, Jesus says, I give you back to your mother. Yeah, we got another one. See, Jesus is all about resurrection. God visiting His people. And by the way, Israel, like the widow herself, was about to lose her son. Her son Jesus was about to die. And yet, it is God's, it was God's intention to raise Israel's son back to life and give him, so to speak, back to his mother. What are you talking about, Rick? Zechariah 12.10 They will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Don't forget, Jesus is Israel's son. Jesus is God's son, absolutely. God in the flesh, Emmanuel. But He is a Jew. And the work that God has done to save Gentiles is phenomenal, historically miraculous, eternally miraculous, but He is still working with the Jewish people. They are still His children, and Jesus is still the connected Jewish Messiah. God wants to give His Son back to Israel. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, so it is to be. Amen. Verse 18. Well, the disciples of John reported to Him all these things. All what things? Well, pretty much everything that we've talked about so far. Alright? Which means, what? Healings? Teachings? Sermon on the Mount? Sermon on the Plain? Resurrection from the dead? All of this. John's disciples are seeing Jesus on the move. John's in prison, and they're telling John, you've got to see what's happening out here. Well, verse 19, summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? Now, I'm going to come back to this whole section with John and Jesus on Sunday. In fact, here through verse 38, we're going to look at on Sunday in depth. But i got to say something tonight. Because what's going on here is, if you're outlining a deputation of doubt. Had a delegation of faith with the centurion, right? A demonstration of deity as Jesus raises the dead. Well, now, now we have a deputation of doubt that John is in prison and he's sending some of his guys to ask Jesus... Is it you? Doesn't John know by now? Shouldn't John be aware of that? This is the same John who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world! About Jesus. This is the same John who in the Apostle John's Gospel, chapter 1, around verse 20, who said, I didn't, I didn't recognize Him in that I didn't know it was Him until I saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Him as a dove. Heard the voice of God say, this is my beloved Son. He said, then I knew that this is the Christ. John knew who Jesus was. So why does he send a deputation of doubt? Are, are you Him? Are you the one? And I believe it's because there's a kind of doubt that comes from discouragement. I don't think John didn't believe in Jesus. I don't think that his faith was lost. As oftentimes in our Christian lives, it's not that we doubt in terms of faith, it's just we don't know what's going on. We're discouraged. John is sitting in prison. Things have not gone well. He stood up for what was right, what was morally true, and he's thrown into prison for it. And I think that John is in that place of doubt by discouragement. He knows who Jesus is. 
But he, he's having a bad day. <laughs> and he's got to be sure. Can you just can you just confirm this, Lord? I love how Jesus responds. He doesn't scold. He doesn't chastise John. As we'll see on Sunday, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, go back to John and tell them, tell him again what you've seen. The deaf can hear, the blind can see, the lame are walking, the dead are raised. Tell John. Jesus doesn't scold him. He also doesn't say, well, of course I am, John, you idiot. He says, look at the credentials. Right? The credentials of Christ that we looked at last week. All of these things that Jesus was doing, these messianic manifestations, were proof positive that Jesus was exactly who He said He was. And so Jesus tells John's buddies, go tell him. Let him know about this. John wasn't down on Jesus. He was just down. And I am so blessed and so thankful that Jesus understands that. That He looks at you and looks at me. In our days of doubt, because we're depressed or we're sorrowful or life's hard, He looks at us and He goes, I understand. Look one more time at my credentials. If you are uncertain about me, take another look. It's what you're doing tonight, by the way, and I hope it's encouraging just to see Jesus at work. It's one of the reasons why we keep going back to the Gospels, that we might see Him at work. Skip down now to verse 36. We'll come back to John on Sunday, talk about some curious things that take place there. But verse 36, next story. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. First of all, how did this woman get into Simon's house? Was there a back door that she knew about? (laughs) You need to understand something culturally here. Uh, Simon's invitation... I believe we can say was a showy event. Simon's wanting to gain a little notoriety here. And right now, Jesus is the hottest ticket in town. So, well, let's have him over to the house. And let's make sure everybody is aware of this. Like any good politician, Simon knew his constituents. And so I believe he's playing up to them. He had his motives. The dinner would have probably been al fresco. Outdoors. The wealthier among the Jews would have not only their home, but they would have an outer courtyard and large gates. If they were having a big dinner party, they would open the gates so that the people in the town could look in and see what was going on and be aware of that. Probably that's what's going on here. And Jesus comes in, and they're outdoors around the table. That gate is open so the people of the town can see what Simon the Pharisee is doing. And the woman just slipped right in. But understand that Simon has got a celebrity here in Jesus, and this is kind of a power play on his part. If he had wanted, however, to sidle up to Jesus, if he had wanted to be connected to Jesus, there are some things he would have handled differently. First of all, he would have made sure Jesus' feet were washed when he walked into the door. You would do that for a guest. Secondly, 
he would have probably had Jesus' head anointed as he arrived as, as well. A show of honor, a show of dignity, a show of welcome. And he would have given Jesus a welcoming kiss, which is what you did if you had some, someone dignified, someone honorable coming into your home. And he would have played that up. He did none of those things. There's a display going on here, gang, for the town. And Simon is displaying authority as a Pharisee over this rabbi. Who will give audience to? And so the rabbi comes in. His feet are dirty. He would pull off his shoes. He would sit down, be reclined at the table. Do you suppose that this woman looking in from the outside recognized the cultural snubs that had just taken place? They didn't wash his feet or or, or welcome him with a kiss or anoint his head with oil. And I wonder, total surmise on my part, but I wonder if the woman went in to correct the wrong. That her original intention was just to go in and anoint his feet and try to clean him up a little bit because no one else was doing that. How could you do that to this Jesus? How does she anoint him from behind? Well, he's reclining at the table. His feet would have been somewhat back behind him. Very easy for her to come and to anoint and verse 39 tells us as she's doing this, and I think now it says that she's weeping. She brought that alabaster vial. She's wetting his feet with her tears. She's wiping them with her hair. She's kissing his feet and anointing them. Things get a little out of control here for the woman. Why? She is overwhelmed with love for Jesus. And I don't know, but I really, I'm going to ask her someday. I'm going to ask her, was part of this because you were so heartbroken at how he was being treated in this Pharisee's house? So she's in there and the Pharisee, verse 39, who had invited him, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. (laughs) He says this to himself, right? Jesus hears you. (laughs) Jesus answered him, Simon, got something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So very simply, the denarii was a day's wage. So one owed 500 days wages and the other owed 50 days. Pretty big difference there. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, You judge correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Now, first of all, Simon probably couldn't take his eyes off this woman. Because this woman is attracting all of his attention. Of course, he's seen her. He's staring at her. He's judging her maliciously, arbitrarily. Do you see her? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And by the way, Jesus is not on the attack here. He's just calling it as it is. 
Hey, I came to your house. You didn't do these things. Look at what she's doing. Jesus is drawing out a beautiful, a powerful comparison. Truly, He's talking about the debt of love. Number four in your outline, the debt of love. And when we look at this, understand that the fastest way, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, the fastest way to restore passion when your love seems cold is to recall your redemption. It's to pause momentarily in all of your, well, let me say, in all of my self-righteousness. don't want to blame you for being that way from time to time, but to pause in all of my holiness and realize how far I was away from God when Jesus found me. How loved, how redeemed, how washed, how cleansed I have become because of His blood. How worthless. And yet now how worthy because of Jesus I have become. Think of Luke 7.47. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. I love that it's verse 7.47 because it gives flight to our love. (laughs) It helps our love take off. Truly. It gets us off the runway. I have been loved much. And the more I recognize the love of the Father for me, that's why we keep singing that song. How wide, how long, how high, how deep is the Father's love? And the more I see that, the more I love the Father. The more I recognize my forgiveness, the deeper my love goes. 747, don't forget that. Take off. In the love of Jesus Christ, in His gracious Forgiveness. How much? Answer this in your own mind tonight. How much has God forgiven you? I am, I am such an idiot. I confess to you, and there are times, I was confessing this to Glenn today, we were sitting there talking, and there, there are things you do and things you say and, and behaviors, and, and you just, I, I'm, I'm here on the, on the crest of 50, and I'm going, how long, God, until I get to the point where I'm not an idiot? <laughs> you still got a ways to go, Rick. And I think about these things. I think about things that get by the filter even when I'm preaching and teaching. Boy, if you knew the things that I think but but keep back. (laughs) The things that I don't say because I realize inappropriate. You know? And then I stop and I think, how much has God forgiven me? I've told you all before, as a 10-year-old boy, I didn't really know how much God had forgiven me. But with every year of my life, there's that much more for Him to have forgiven. And so the older I get, the more I recognize the beauty, the depth, the wonder of God's grace and of His amazing forgiveness. And that's why I believe Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us. That word compels us. Having concluded this, that He died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so truly, the degree to which I love Jesus is only as great as the degree to which I recognize how much He loves me. And when I sit and bask in His love, my love for Him gets bigger. That's the way it works. 747. Verse 48, he says to her, Your sins have been forgiven. 
those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, and I love this, don't miss it, Your faith has saved you. Shalom. Go in peace. Go in peace. Of all the miracles of Jesus, this one, this one is the greatest. Of all the miracles we will see recounted in the Gospel according to Luke, this one is the very top of all. Why? Because the rest of the miracles are momentary. The man was lame, now I can walk. Great, he's going to die. You know, the man was blind, now he can see. Yeah, until someone pokes his other eye out. You know, the man was deaf and now he can hear, but that hearing is going to fail him as he gets older and his body decays. Momentary miracles, as wonderful as they are, they're momentary. This miracle, the miracle of forgiveness, is eternal. Jesus says your sins have been forgiven you. Done deal. And on into eternity now, you walk as forgiven. Wow! It is that forgiveness that fuels our love. And and it is that forgiveness that lands us, because that 747 has to land, right? Lands us in the place of shalom. Peace. From the forgiveness of Christ, I draw both incredible love and amazing peace. By the way, Jesus' treatment of women, you gals, His treatment of women is unparalleled in the first century world. No rabbi was treating women like this. No man had the tenderness of heart for women that Jesus had. For those who would call God uh, anti-woman. It just blows my mind. These are the ones who have never read the Bible. And I'm talking Old Testament as well as New. If you would believe that God doesn't care for women, or that God shuns women, or that God presses women down to elevate man in his rule of authority over woman, you miss the fact that the whole reason why there's man in any kind of authority over woman is because of a curse. Not the way God created it to be. Read the story, Genesis chapter 3. But Jesus' treatment of women is, well, it's legendary. And Paul would turn around and say in Galatians 3.28, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. No wonder so many women were devoted to Him in a holy and righteous way. He had a gathering of women who followed Him everywhere He went. Caring for the apostles, because most of us guys need that. (laughs) Need a little help. Can you imagine? Think about that. Twelve guys and Jesus camping out for three years. Someone had to take care of the laundry. No offense, gals. Somebody had to care for the needs. There was a group of women, we find out, in verse 1 of chapter 8, who did just that. Soon afterwards, He began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with Him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, that is from from the city of Migdal today, Magdala, right there on the sea coast of the Galilee, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Shuza, Herod's steward, and Susanna, oh, Susanna, I read that and I think, don't you cry for me. (laughs) And many others who were contributing to their support out of their private 
means. Number five, the devotion of the ladies. Jesus had it. He had the devotion of the ladies. And by the way, not because they did the laundry. See, that was one of the things that got past the filter right there. These women were devoted to Him because He had healed them. Because He respected them. Now, a couple of things to note about this. Some church traditions have unfairly typecast Mary from Magdala. From everything, as everything from a prostitute to the wife of Jesus to the mother of His love child. That's all out there. The last two I mentioned are complete bunk. That she would be the wife of Jesus. Well, according to the Da Vinci Code, two things. First of all, even if Leonardo da Vinci did believe that, and probably didn't, he wasn't there. He wasn't there. Isn't that just... You know, people look at the painting of the Last Supper by Da Vinci and they look at that and they try and draw out all kinds of things like, look, the way that people are shaped, there's an M for Mary. And look at the one next to Jesus there. Boy, that's effeminate. That's got to be Mary. And so Leonardo obviously... Who cares what Leonardo believed? He wasn't at the Last Supper saying, hold still, Peter, while I paint. (laughs) I don't get it. You know, the, the whole stir that that whole Da Vinci Code thing had... It just was cracking me up. People get, get we got to get our history down. Anyway, not the wife of Jesus, not the mother of some child that Jesus perhaps maybe... No, 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 no. No, it's heresy. heresy. There you go. It's heresy. And the idea that, Jesus, that, that Mary from Magdala was a prostitute is hearsay. Do you know where that comes from? She just happens to be mentioned in the next story after the story of the woman who was a sinner. That is the only connection in Scripture between Mary Magdalene and and the sinner woman who Jesus forgave. And so someone along the line put two two and two together and got five. Well, she's mentioned here. Perhaps that must be her there. And not only is that Mary that's being talked about who Jesus forgave at the end of chapter 7, but she's a sinner, so she must be a prostitute. Oh yeah, because that's the only way a woman can sin. My point is very simple. We would do best to stick to the word as given. And Luke's point here, I believe, is something unique is taking place. We got Mary. And what you need to know about Mary was not that perhaps she was a prostitute or perhaps she was the woman from the previous chapter. What you need to know about Mary is that she was cleaned of seven demons. That's a life completely changed. That's a woman who was released from captivity just as Jesus said in Luke 4 He would do. So she's completely devoted to Jesus. You have Joanna and Susanna who are equally healed and devoted to the Lord. And these women here, Luke tells us, are His primary financial support. So what? So scandalous in the first century. For a rabbi to be supported by a group of women? Oh, now come on. I mean, these these things aren't done. No self-respecting rabbi would give place to women? Well, Jesus was no self-respecting rabbi. He was a rabbi who rightly respected women. And we need to understand that about Jesus. And by the way, men and women, brothers and sisters, we need to let those who would see God as chauvinistic and macho 
We need to let them know what the Scriptures teach about our Lord who always, always cared for His daughters. Who always looked after the concerns of women. I mean, go back in the Scriptures. Hagar cast out because Sarah was jealous because Sarah sent Hagar into sleep with Abraham so that Sarah could have a child, but then when it happened, she went, I don't really like the way this feels. Hagar, get out. And what does God do? He meets her in the wilderness and He cares for her. Rahab, the harlot, used up by men. And God said, I have a place for her. Bathsheba, lured into the king's palace. And God says, I'm going to put her in the genealogy too. And and along with Tamar, Ruth, the outsider, they're all going to be in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. See, God cares for all of His people. Male, female, there is no distinction in Jesus Christ. And some of you might say, well then why don't you have women elders? I'm way off note, by the way. Why don't you have women elders? Because God didn't tell us to. It's not because a woman isn't completely capable. It's not because a woman couldn't handle things as well or perhaps at times better. (laughs) I've told you all before, part of the reason we don't have women elders is because if we did, none of the guys would do it. We'd be watching the game. You know, go go to your meeting, honey. I'm fine. We have more chips, you know. <laughs> we do it God's way because God has wisdom we don't have. And God does have roles for us, male roles, female roles, that He says, I want men doing this, I want women doing this. That's awesome. And when we function in those roles together, side by side in Jesus Christ, it's all good. And note that no shepherd can be a shepherd unless he's married, which God recognizes... So, Jesus respected women. That's the point. And Luke points that out. And Luke, being the only you know, Gentile writer of all of these stories, of all of this history, Luke is saying, this is something different. Something different's going on with this Rabbi Jesus.